G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. And an opportunity for you over this next hour to participate in a conversation that will come around national values. Once upon a time we used to think of Australia's national values as things like football, meat pies, kangaroos and Holden cars. But things are changing, and on another level, these days we often talk about mateship, about fairness, about even this issue of equality. But as immigration issues have been in the headlines this past few days, and the realisation that we're growing by about 200,000 immigrants every year, the likelihood is that national values will soon find new definitions, because the balance of Religious values is changing. Well, in the UK, they're going through this. They are deliberating at this time over the emergence of Sharia councils, like an alternative legal system. As the population balance changes, the debate over national values also changes. We're going to talk about national values today. We're going to talk about the UK. We're going to talk about Southeast Asia and nations like Malaysia. Well, our special guest is Professor Peter Riddell, who's Vice Principal Academic at the Melbourne School of Theology. Peter is an expert on Islam, and especially in the Southeast Asian context, but also a professorial research associate in the Department of History at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London. And always a pleasure to welcome back to 2020, Professor Peter Riddell. Hello, Peter. Welcome along. Uh, Hello, Neil. Thank you. It's uh, good to be back. Peter, you've heard my introduction there. We're going to talk a lot about the UK over this next hour, Uh, but it's not just the UK. Uh, There is a significant change in uh, population, a change in national values that's happening in a lot of nations around the world. Indeed, indeed, there is, and um, Australia is a very good example of that. Um, as you, you, you quoted some figures in your introduction, which are important, which give us a taste as to the changing nature of Australian society. Um, and of course, alongside the, uh, the the inflow of immigrants, there is a um, uh, the dominant policy of multiculturalism, which accompanies it, and. Uh, and that has an important role to play in the future direction of Australia as a society. Is Australia going to be a society that is based on a notion of people working together uh, in a cohesive kind of way, or is it going to be a society that is going to become increasingly fragmented? So these are important issues to discuss. Uh, that word multiculturalism, it's an important one, is it? Be- isn't it? Because as soon as you have uh, immigration that changes the balance of ethnicity of a nation, you have to then uh, be discussing how you are as a society going to deal with all of these different multicultural issues. And that's a debate that is going on not only here in Australia, but there are other nations like uh, the UK, uh, which seem to be a little further along than we are. Yes, indeed. Look, uh, multiculturalism has come to be the dominant 
paradigm really of uh, society building over the last 50 years in Western countries. Um, some countries have led the charge. The United Kingdom is certainly one of them, France and, and more recently Germany. Uh, and it brings with it all kinds of challenges. Um, and uh, the, British, uh, the British example is a good example for Australians to look at because Britain's uh, experiment with social multiculturalism started before Australia's did and it's uh, proceeded at a much more rapid pace and the challenges that come with it have assumed a much greater dimension in Britain earlier. So Australians can learn a lot by looking at the British example. Uh, there's another word too, uh, which you might have some thoughts about, this word pluralism, because when we have a government or we have an established set of national values, and uh, there are some good things that are a part of those, accommodating uh, other ethnicities, other cultural groupings within that uh, society uh, this is important and and it has to be talked about uh, how do you hold on to uh, a structure of good values without letting those slip aside uh, when you've got a growing population and the balance changes well in a sense neil it, it relates very much to what what is in the center <clears throat> For, for a long time, um, Western societies were were Christian societies. Um, Christianity formed the core of not only our faith, but of the values of society. And there was a very clear centre. Now, of course, um, when it, when Australia was more self-consciously a Christian society, and and Britain as well, there was pluralism to an extent. There were other groups, there were other religious minorities, and so forth. But there was no doubt about what that centre constituted. Uh, and that was Christian identity, Christian values, Christian faith, expressions of Christianity. When you take the centre away, then pluralism becomes this floating mass of competing ideologies, and and it can very easily lead to to confusion in identity. And I think that's the big challenge that Western societies have faced increasingly as they've moved away from their Christian heritage. So Australia isn't immune to huge changes into the future and we might feel a little safe, we might feel secure right now, uh, but we're not immune, are we? We are in, in fact uh, on the same trajectory as these other nations and as we watch what's happening in places like the UK and we'll get to Malaysia shortly because that's another area of, of special interest that you have, but Australians not immune. We ought not to be sitting here in our own little safety bubble uh, thinking that we're not going to be affected, Peter. Oh, that's, look, that's exactly right. I mean, look, uh, life, life in many ways, comparatively, is relatively easy in Australia, and it's easy for Australians to, to sit in our bubble and to enjoy the relative ease. Uh, however, we do need to look beyond our shores and to look at what's happening in countries like Britain and uh, just to ask, well, are there lessons to be learnt? Uh, have the British made mistakes and have the British learnt good lessons that we could, we could benefit from? And I think there clearly are. Okay, well, let's get a focus on the UK because we talked about UK in the introduction and in the UK there has been a very multicultural uh, policy there for a long time. Uh, there are a lot of uh, people who've uh, moved to the UK and brought with them uh, their religious uh, foundations and uh, we are going to talk today about those who are coming with Muslim foundations because with Muslim foundations comes this idea of Sharia. 
Now, you might like to, uh, for our, our, our guests, uh, for our listeners who might not be so familiar with, with what we talk about with Sharia, it's an alternative form of law, isn't it? Uh, that, uh, that, that, uh, that Islam uh, has, a, a, that's different to our uh, law that we have in the West, which has its Christian foundation. Yes, look, the, uh, the details of Sharia law, they were largely worked out over a thousand years ago um, uh, in the 800s and the 900s. Um, Sharia law and its, all its legal codes and all the details that goes with the legal system were shaped according to the societies in the Middle East at that time, 800 AD, 900 AD and so forth. And at the time, in some ways, they were rather enlightened. But of course, we have now moved on by 1,100 years, and you can imagine if we suddenly wanted to resurrect the laws in Britain, for example, from 900 AD, they would seem rather archaic, and we wouldn't do that. Well, that's really what Sharia law is about. Um, It's a legal system that dates from 900 AD, and it is no longer enlightened. Um, In fact, I think I'd really want to say that uh, Sharia law is an interesting artefact of history, but that's really where it belongs, um, because it has built within it entrenched um, advantage for males, uh, inequality for females, uh, discrimination against minorities and so forth. And I personally believe that Sharia law has no place in the 21st century. Um, However, some are pushing for its implementation in different ways in the UK and elsewhere. And I think uh, Australians need to look at what's happening very clearly. And in the UK, they've just come from a two-year review deliberation about the presence and what flavour Sharia councils will take in the UK. That's been a significant thing, even to have a two-year review, which which really means that Sharia is on the agenda and it might not be yet law, but it's just waiting to happen. Yes. Well, in Britain uh, today, there are perhaps up to 85 uh, what, they, what they're calling Sharia councils which are, are operating. And they're operating within restricted domains in areas of family law, in areas of divorce, um, in areas of inheritance and child custody and so forth. But they are based on Sharia. As I say, Sharia itself is based on what we would see today as inequality. So, for example, um, in, uh, in, a, in a, a Sharia court, the judges have to be Muslim, the judges have to be male. Uh, in, in, uh, Sharia, under Sharia law, if uh, a person dies, then their, son, their Muslim sons inherit twice as much as their daughters. Um, if you have a Muslim man marry a non-Muslim woman, then the children must become must become Muslim, and the Muslim children will inherit over the non-Muslim wife, the non-Muslim mother. So these kinds of inequalities are in place now. They're built into the body of Sharia law. Now in Britain, when you have 85 Sharia councils drawing on those kinds of laws to make decisions about divorce cases and inheritance cases and custody cases, then it's a recipe for for significant discrimination and disadvantage, especially for women. And that's where the outcry is coming coming from. Uh, Peter, uh, and, uh, just a, a little question, an aside, that might be running through the minds of listeners. Are there any Sharia councils operating in Australia, or are they called something different? Uh, but clearly every mosque must have its own way of of uh, endorsing certain marriage practices and such things. Are these things any, are there any prominence for these Sharia council type operations in Australia? 
Well, certainly there are operations that are emerging and that have been reported on. In fact, since 2013, there have been uh, a number of sporadic reports that have, uh, that have appeared in the Australian media of um, the equivalent of Sharia councils um, emerging and operating, in, especially in Sydney and in Melbourne. So the, the, the trend is there. Australia is nowhere near as far down the track as Britain is. And this is why we need to look very carefully at what's happening in Britain and learn the lessons for Australia and be warned. Uh, well, we might come back to some more of this definition of what Sharia is so that we're informed about that and so that we can contrast those things from our own Christian understanding and our own heritage here in Australia. But there are other, uh, other uh, nations and indeed Commonwealth nations uh, like Malaysia uh, that is even a further step ahead of the UK. And this is another area of interest for you, Peter. Yes, it certainly is. Malaysia is a very interesting te- uh, test case, really, because it has a Muslim majority, but not a huge Muslim majority. 60% of Malaysians are Muslim, 40% are non-Muslim. But what's happened in the case of Malaysia is that over the last 40 years, um, th- there has e- evolved a much more clearly distinct parallel legal system between the civil courts and the Sharia courts. Now, the Sharia courts only apply to Muslims, that's the theory, and the civil courts apply to others. But where Muslims and non-Muslims cross over in certain kinds of ways, then the Sharia courts end up um, end up gaining. And there's been a very interesting and somewhat disturbing case recently uh, where four um, Muslim people who decided to leave Islam and become uh, Christian um, applied to have their identity cards changed to reflect their new Christian identity. Um, they were rejected by the uh, initial uh, the initial uh, body which considered it. They then appealed to the court system, and a decision was recently taken where their case could only be heard in the Sharia court system. Now, for former Muslims who go to the Sharia court system asking for permission to leave Islam are unlikely to get yes for an answer. And so a parallel legal system is a warning signal. There's a lesson to be learned from Malaysia. It's be- the same kind of things beginning to emerge in Britain and that's, that's uh, certainly worth discussing. And of course for those who might be thinking that this is some form of you know, conspiracy theory that we're talking about today, you're talking about real facts, real nations, and the real rise of Sharia in uh, these nations that uh, at one stage had certain freedoms, uh, freedoms uh, to be able to uh, govern in their own right uh, under a, a real uh, uh, a, an opportunity uh, that was really based in, in a Christian foundation. But uh, freedoms are one of those things that disappears uh, when you have Sharia. How do you relate the idea of freedom and Sharia? Well, um, Sharia law is, is it, it's the Muslim law, and it's based on the notion of a kind of replacement theology. That is, Islam is is the last. Muslims believe Islam to be the last faith, which supersedes all previous faiths, and therefore the legal system that goes with that faith faith should have predominance. So. Where Muslims exist as a community, the call is for Islamic law to dominate, for Sharia law to dominate. Um, and within, within that, freedom only exists in as much as it agrees with the, 
with the dictates of Sharia law. I should add, incidentally, that many, many Muslims are uncomfortable about the the, the creeping rise of Sharia law too. Um, In fact, many Muslims come to the West to get away from Sharia legal systems in Muslim-majority countries. And when they find that in the West they're starting to have Sharia applied, they react with horror. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. I want to invite you to join in our conversation as we talk about national values and changing national values. You might have your own thoughts to contribute. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. You might have a question for our special guest. We have been talking about the UK and also Malaysia, but in uh, in contrast to all of that, uh, where we are in Australia, deliberating over the emergence of Sharia councils in the UK, like an alternative legal system. Well, our special guest is Professor Peter Riddell, Vice Principal Academic at the Melbourne School of Theology, an expert in Islam, especially in the Southeast Asian context, but also uh, in the UK. Uh, when we talk about these sorts of issues, Peter, let me just reflect uh, for a moment uh, with uh, your thoughts uh, on the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who came out recently uh, saying that Islamic rules are incompatible with British laws, which have Christian values. Uh, is he just a voice crying in the wilderness when it comes to all the changes that are happening? Well, I certainly hope not, Neil. Um, he's certainly he's in a significant voice in that um, the Church of England is the established church in Britain, and as such, the Archbishop of Canterbury, as head of that church, has a certain voice in the corridors of power. So I hope I hope he is uh, listened to. He's he's made some very interesting uh, comments. He's he speaks with authority on this. Um, he's not he's not simply a um, you know, a clergyman, but he's also a scholar. He's just written a book called Reimagining Britain. And in that book, among other areas of focus, he has made this very clear statement that uh, Islamic rules are incompatible with British laws based on Christian values. I mean, his argument is that um, as as we where we started in this conversation, Islamic laws... Uh, evolved in the 900s, uh, 900 AD, 800 AD, 900 AD, in a certain social context. In contrast, British law, as uh, Britain has it today, and the laws on which Australia is also based, evolved over many centuries in a British context, in a British Christian context, and they are deeply embedded and imbued with the values of Judeo-Christianity. Um, now, you know, it's not simply a matter of comparing uh, shallow laws that date from recent years. We're talking here about two legal systems that have roots that go back many centuries. And to seek to to slice off part of Islamic law and embed it within British law is, is, is artificial. Um, so Welby, just, um, Archbishop Welby is absolutely correct. Um, I certainly hope he gets the hearing that he deserves and, um, and that the British uh, policymakers take notice. And it wouldn't be wrong, would it, to suggest that uh, those who are on the Islamic side are not looking for an equality, they're looking for a dominance. Uh, how does that uh, sit with your uh, thoughts on uh, on the sort of goals that Islam might have? 
Well, I think it's important to, to look at the, um, the review that was undertaken. And Archbishop Welby was partly responding to, to the review. The, back, in, back in 2016, the um, British Home Secretary called for a review into the application of Sharia law in England and Wales. And the, and the question really was to ask to what extent Sharia law is being practised and how compatible it is with British law. And, of course, what the review found is, is as we discussed earlier, up to 85 Sharia councils operating, um, uh, operating especially in areas of, of domestic and family law, um, divorce, custody, uh, inheritance and so forth. But it found that these, these councils um, are practising, uh, following practices which the report, r- report refers to as bad practices. So, for example... Um, uh, there are some cases where a divorce might happen because the husband initiates the divorce and the husband can in- easily initiate a divorce, whereas a wife, to get a divorce, she often has to pay a significant amount of money to the husband to get him to agree. And the one case was cited where a wife needed to pay her husband $25,000 or the equivalent to get a divorce whereas a husband would only just need to pronounce the I divorce thee three times and it would, uh, in certain contexts and it would be done. So this report has revealed all kinds of um, inadequacies and discriminatory practices with the principal victims being, uh, being Muslim women. Okay, we're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. You might like to participate in our conversation today or you might have a question you'd like to ask. Let's hear from David in Wellington in New South Wales. Hello, David. Welcome along. I don't give a damn about people coming to Australia. Okay, David. But, but, uh, yeah. Sure. Share your thoughts with us. Yeah. Just, Um, uh, you might like to turn your radio down in the background, David. Yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> we'll wait for a moment. It's always useful to turn the radio down. Uh, otherwise, uh, when we've got a delay on, uh, hey. sometimes. Have you? Are you with us, David? You got me on the radio, then. <laughs> there you go, mate. Good, David. Share yeah. your thoughts very quickly. We're running out of time. Yeah, all right. My my thoughts very quickly is uh, we've got a, a lot of young people in, in Australia. Why not train them instead of pull them all from uh, out, out, out the seas? You know what I mean? Okay, David, that's a, it's a good thought because uh, immigration levels at this time, as I understand it, around about 400,000 total growth this past year, 200,000 of that uh, growth from within Australia and uh, around 200,000 outside. This immigration uh, issue is an important one. Your thoughts for David uh, as we uh, go here, Peter? Yes, well, look, it gets to the root of the question, uh, should Australia have immigration? Now, um, uh, Australia will always need some immigration, there's no doubt about it. Um, and, in fact, Australia has been a country of Im- immigrants. However, what, um, where, where the multiculturalism card is, is significant is that uh, I, I would argue that for a number of decades the immigration has been not necessarily um, monitored to the extent of ensuring that, that you're building a cohesive society. So I think whatever immigration policy and whatever immigration numbers are, are accepted, we need to 
ensure that those immigrants are contributing to building one nation, a, a nation together, building a cohesive society and coming and accepting the laws of this land and living by the laws of this land, not trying to establish parallel legal systems, for example. That should be the basis of uh, immigration policies. Thanks so much to David in New South Wales. Let's take a call. Shelby is in Brisbane. Hi, Shelby. Hey, yes, uh, Neil, Peter. Mate, um, yeah, I'm very much uh, um, for the fact that, um, you know, when my grandfather's uh, come along, um, Polish, Prussian, and then my mother's side, Irish, we all had the Irish clubs, we all had the German clubs and so on, but we stuck to the one law. And I don't know why we had these people that come to our country want to change everything to suit them. Hey, I thought they were escaping their country in most cases, and it's just a shame that we have to put up this um, this problem of um, having to defend our our um, country with its um, established laws. Shelby, good uh, thoughts, and we're just a minute out from news. Quick response from you, Peter, for Shelby. Yes, I mean, that, look, that was a helpful comment from Shelby. Basically, it, he's basing it on, on the notion of when in Rome do as the Romans do, uh, applying that to the legal system, and I, I completely agree. Uh, Peter Riddell, let's take a call. Uh, before we move on in this conversation, uh, let's hear from Steve in Denmark in WA. Hello, Steve. Uh, hi. Steve, good. What are your thoughts for our conversation today? Um, well, with the immigration issue... Uh, I myself don't actually even have a problem with the immigration side per se, as in like my dad, when he split up with my mum many years ago, he remarried to a national, Chinese national. My, I'm married to a, uh, an immigrant. My sister, one of my sisters is married to an immigrant. My brother married a Thai uh, woman. So, I mean, you know, in our family, you know, it's full of immigrants. The, the issue is, and what's not working in this country, is Islamic immigration, pure and simple. I mean, who would have heard 20 years ago of African crime gangs running the streets in cities, bashing and home invasions and, and all that sort of stuff? Look at the crime rate of Islam. Muslims in jails now. Our supermaxes overflowing with Islamic immigrants that are involved in all sorts of, you know, like serious drug crimes. Steve, you're making um, some good points here and uh, a thought or two from Peter Riddell because when you talk about immigration, Steve, you're not saying that immigration is bad. It's just when you have a religious context for some of that immigration which rubs everyone up the wrong way, that's where you've got a problem. Uh, a thought or two from Peter Riddell. Yeah, well, look, I think Steve's raising raising some very good points here. He, the the, 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 the big issue he's raising is the importance of not just having a, a blanket open immigration policy but being selective and immigration authorities having policies and asking questions who is going to or which immigrant groups are going to best contribute to Australian society in the future in terms of building a society together. Now of course there have been plenty of immigrant groups in the past that, that have contributed and built well um, and th so the issue that we're, we're facing today is 
Okay, well, where are the problem areas with the immigration policy? And uh, Steve gave us a few examples there. So I think we can develop that as the conversation goes on. Thank you so much to Steve uh, from Denmark in WA. And our talkback line remains open, 1-800-316-316. We'll take some more calls in just a short while. I want to ask you, Peter Adele, because we were talking about the rise of these Sharia councils in the UK and their push for legitimacy as a alternative legal system in the UK. And this is one way that really, really does change national values because the whole culture changes. There was a review, and a two-year review as it was, on the rise of these Sharia councils. But as I understand it, there were a whole bunch of human rights agencies that boycotted the review. Uh, what was all the controversy there? Yes, indeed. And again, this is where I think Australia has got an important, uh, an important lesson to draw from this case. When the review was conducted, as you say, carried out over two years, lots of interviews with different people in Sharia in, in, who'd been involved in the Sharia councils in different kinds of ways, um, the review team had heard repeated reports about women being disadvantaged and discriminated against in the Sharia councils, but they found it very hard to find any women who were willing to come forward and put that on paper. So there was a, a clearly a sense of, uh, some sense of intimidation that they seemed to have experienced. Now, um, at the end of the day, the review came out with a set of recommendations which basically said, well, the Sharia councils should be allowed to continue, but they could be improved by doing X, Y and Z. And the human rights agencies which boycotted the whole process challenged that very assumption because the human rights agencies said it's not enough to say, well, let's keep with the Sharia councils and let's just fix what they're doing. They should be, they don't have a place in Britain today because Sharia law itself has got inbuilt problems. And the human rights agencies wrote a letter to the, um, to the review team citing examples as to why Sharia law itself should be put in the dock and severely questioned. And they cited examples of a woman's testimony being worth half of that of a man's, problems of marital rape, sexual violence, domestic abuse, forced marriage and so forth, all of which can take place under Sharia law. So the human rights agencies were saying it's not a matter of fixing the Sharia councils, it's a matter of wiping them away and getting uh, the Muslim community in Britain to follow the laws of the land, which are already well established and deeply embedded in British history. Uh, you've come up with such an incredible point here, Peter, because a lot of people will be thinking, if this happens in Australia and there's a rise of sh Sharia councils here, uh, a tweak here and a tweak there, a little bit of fine-tuning, and hey, you know, everyone will be, will be happy and, uh, and it'll all flow in with our law. But what you're saying is... Uh, this idea of trying to fix it isn't going to work because this is a system that's been in place uh, really for the last thousand uh, to 1400 years and it just not is going, it's not going to change with a review committee saying you should change this or that. No, absolutely. And, and let me be very clear on this. My view is that Sharia law belongs in the history books um, to be an interesting item of study for his, his students of history who want to go back and read it. It has no place in the 21st century. Uh, and therefore, um, the Sharia councils are an anomaly in 21st century Britain, and we should ensure that they don't pop up all over the place in Australia as has happened in Britain. Uh, let me ask you the obvious question here. If we have a legal system that's based Based on our Christian roots, uh, some might say, well, uh, what about the age of our Christian roots going back uh, 2,000 years to the, uh, the Bible? Uh, 
uh, and uh, the influence upon Christi- uh, upon the legal system there. Uh, some people might say, isn't that all outdated too? What's your response for people like that? Mm. Yes. Well, look, the, 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 the legal system in, in our country, in Australia, is a very dynamic legal system. Um, it is based on Judeo-Christian roots, but it has been dynamic over the centuries and it has changed according to times, according to, you know, the, 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 the demands and the requirements and the, the requests of, of society. So, in our, in our legal system, it's possible to protest and to have the law changed. Sharia law, on the other hand, is regarded as a, a divine law, and it is much less uh, available to change at its core than, than Western law. So they're really quite different kinds of kinds of um, uh, creatures, really. Western law and Sharia law. Sharia law is much more impervious to change. Western law evolves with the times and is dynamic and is subject to change. We're taking calls on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's hear from Chris in Victoria. Hello, Chris. Welcome along. Uh, good day, Neil. Uh, yeah, um, I mean, um, God says um, God chastised the uh, Jewish people most of the time for spiritual prostitution. Uh, you know, whenever they went to war, or whatever, they were to destroy all the enemies for one reason, so they would not follow other gods. Uh, uh, we can have multiculturalism. This. In Australia, that's no problem, like you say. I mean, you can welcome people of other dresses, other foods, other cultures, but it's the belief system, the core. That's why we have to have people of Judeo-Christian values coming here. That's the only way we'll have harmony. And if we don't take people, refugees, in that have that same value, who else is going to take them in? I mean, the Muslim world is not going to take them in. The Hindu world, the Buddhist world is not going to take in Christians. Who else is going to take in people of those values? And uh, they'll be the ones that will contribute most to our society. Uh, good thoughts in there, Chris. Uh, response from you, Peter Riddell. Um, actually, Chris raised an interesting point, doesn't he? Um, that is, with the uh, and with the outflow of literally millions of refugees from Syria and from Iraq, joined, of course, by refugees from Afghanistan and Pakistan and Somalia and Eritrea and Morocco and all over the place. Um, mostly, mostly Muslim, though not all Muslim. It's curious that the Muslim nations themselves haven't come forward to assist their fellow believers. Why? Why hasn't Saudi Arabia and uh, Qatar and Oman and so forth opened their doors to help some of their, their Muslim brothers who've, who've flo- flocked out of out of Syria, uh, Syria and Iraq? That's one of the great scandals of the modern immigration story. So certainly. We need to do our part to accept some refugees. We need to be selective in choosing the refugees who come to ensure that we choose those who are going to build a cohesive society in Australia and have a very good um, process of selection and monitoring to ensure that that takes place. Uh, That's a huge conversation on its own about why those Islamic countries are not receiving refugees themselves. Uh, And uh, very quickly on this, Peter, uh, the idea that that uh, within Islam there are divisions that don't mix. So when you bring those div- divisive factors into the West, uh, it's a rod for our own back because uh, Islamic nations recognise just how hard it is to have this sort of mix that uh, comes into their society. Well, indeed. Um, I, I mean, I think there are a number of things going on there. Certainly, um, the 
Saudi Arabia, which is largely a Sunni nation, um, would not want lots of Shiite refugees coming in, um, but there are plenty of Sunni refugees as well. Um, Equally, um, you know, there would be those kinds of, that kind of wariness about accepting some Muslims who are from the other group. But there'd still be plenty of room for the Arab nations of the Middle East to open their doors to fellow Sunnis or whatever their particular group is, but they're just not doing it. And I, I think part of it is a rather cynical desire on the part of those nations to destabilise the West, which is exactly what's happening in Europe. Okay. Thank you so much to Chris in Victoria for your call. Let's take a call from Ursula on the south coast of New South Wales. Hello, Ursula. Yes, good afternoon. Um, the previous call has made part of part of a point I was saying that um, that the nations in the Middle East and Asia do not return the favour. Uh, like if, if Christians were to ask for, you know, for pockets of Christian law to operate for them, that would not, um, you know, that would, would not happen. Ursula, you raise a very good point there. And I wonder whether, Peter, when there is mission activity happening in nations that have Islamic control, uh, that there's a push for some level of Christian law. Uh, does that happen in some nations? Oh, no, not really. Um, I mean, you take countries like Malaysia or like Pakistan where uh, Islamic or increasingly Brunei, where, where Islamic laws are becoming increasingly influential in, in shaping the law of the land. Um, the the result is is not more openness to alternative systems of law, but it's less openness. Other, other religious minorities are squeezed more. So as Islam gets stronger in a country, religious minorities get more and more squeezed, and that's what's happening in the case of Malaysia and in Pakistan and elsewhere. Ursula, on the south coast of New South Wales, I suspect you had a little more to say. Another opportunity. What, what else did you need to add? Um, well, I had a, I had a question uh, concerning immigration. Um, should there be a fixed ratio of immigration to domestic birth rate, um, you know, just to sort of to balance that out and to put a little bit of a, a lead on a, a limit on it? Uh, you might have a comment to make about that, Peter Riddell. That's a very interesting suggestion. Uh, I thank Ursula for that, and I think that's the kind of suggestion that needs to be put into the equation for immigration authorities. We, we need to recognise that um, that how, however much immigration there is. Um, immigration authorities do have quotas they do have a selection process they don't just open their door um, they literally they, they literally don't open the door to everybody so they have a system of selection the question is do they have the right system of selection and uh, I think Ursula's suggestion is a very interesting one that immigration authorities could look at I have long called in my own writing for um, for quotas based on the percentage of a community in the country. So, for example, if the Muslim community is at 2% of the population, for example, then um, 2% of the, of the immigration could be, could be Muslim, similar for Buddhist and so forth. That way, you're allowing uh, a measure of immigration, but you're also preserving the stability of the existing society because I think the stability of society is crucial for the benefit of everybody who's here, not just the Anglo majority, but everybody. So... Yeah, that that was an interesting suggestion by Ursula. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Uh, Let's take one more call. Let's hear from Jonathan in WA. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome along. Yeah, hello. Jonathan, what are your thoughts on our conversation today? Yes, you know, the whole thing is is very hard for people to know who is 
a, a Muslim who is a Christian because uh, people pretending that they are Muslim, they are Christian. They come in with us, sneaking away, and say, "Oh, we are Christian." But when they come out, you see their character. So it will be very hard to do this thing. But we need to be very, very careful so that we not recruit. Let the constitution of this nation be able to analyze these things. Jonathan, you've raised an important point here when it comes to immigration numbers, uh, people falsifying their religious background to suggest that they'll fit in with our values and then their true colours arise uh, when they're here. A very quick response uh, from you, Peter. Well, I, ha- I have heard reports that that has happened. So certainly I think Jonathan's point about uh, uh, authorities needing to be vigilant to ensure that uh, you know there are sincere declarations of identity. I think he's absolutely right on that. Um, so yes, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan. And as we draw things to a close, uh, let's come back to that book uh, that was written by the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. It's called Reimagining Britain. And the idea and the inference in that title, and I haven't read the book, uh, but it does infer that there is a debate about national values, the idea of reimagining what Britain would be like, and the idea that church leaders might have an insight or two to offer when it comes to how those values might look as a national debate gets underway. Your thoughts on the presence and the uh, the importance of church leaders making those sorts of comments and uh, contributing to those values debates, Peter? Yes, look, I think it's absolutely absolutely essential that church leaders be involved in this debate. The old days of um, religion and politics being kept apart, uh, long gone. Church leaders, you know, we, we, the church remains silent at its peril if it doesn't speak into the challenges being faced by Western societies at present. So um, there is definitely a place for um, Archbishop Welby and other church leaders to speak into the situation in Britain. Um, and there's another reason for that too, and that is that... Um, uh, the idea of multiculturalism was about showing respect to newly arriving minorities, but equally, the traditional um, the, the traditional host society deserves respect as well. Now, in the case of Britain and in the case of Australia, the majority society is still Christian, with uh, coming from uh, social and cultural roots that are based on Judeo-Christianity, and therefore that needs to be given respect. And one, an important way of giving it respect is to speak from that perspective. Now, church people are extremely well equipped to speak from that perspective because they can speak about the Judeo-Christian roots of our society, so they should speak out. And the challenge, of course, there is that the church has felt like it has been suppressed of recent times. Uh, there does need to be a leadership emerge in Australia that will cut through and will have that voice being heard. Uh, would you agree with that proposition, Peter? Because uh, there's going to be the need for some more courageous leaders to speak up and even say things that might sound unpopular uh, in the uh, in the political correctness of the day, but to speak out and say their mind. Yes, well, political yeah, political correctness is a form of bullying, actually, <clears throat> um, and there's no doubt about it that um, the church has suffered from political correctness in all kinds of ways in recent decades. Um, it has suffered from polit- politically correct bullying, and there's only one way to respond to bullying, and that is you don't turn your back on it and pretend it doesn't exist. You 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 face it and you speak out, and that's what the church needs to be doing: speaking out, speaking with the. The benefit of the deep Christian wisdom that comes from our faith to address the big challenges that Western society is facing. 
And as we're talking with people listening in, uh, in all sorts of uh, walks of life, all sorts of locations all around Australia, uh, most people listening, no doubt, listening because uh, this is Christian radio. And uh, with that foundation in their own lives, uh, the idea of prayer about the nation's future. What are your encouragements, uh, Peter, for people who might be listening to our conversation now, even feeling a little bit fearful of change, uh, but the idea of being on our knees in prayer before God, because he's the one who has our history in his hands, both in the past and for the future? Yes, look, um, individual listeners um, may feel a bit daunted by calls to speak out, but but in, in every individual Christian can contribute in some way. They can have conversations with people that they know. They can write letters to newspapers. They can write letters to their politicians. They can just, just talk. But prayer is a key one because prayer is about talking to God and bringing the problems that we face before God and seeking his wisdom and his counsel and his guidance and his his solutions so i think um formation of prayer groups individual prayer is part of part of the, the the package that the individual can involve themselves in in speaking into the situation well peter uh, great conversation over this past hour thank you so much for taking part uh, professor peter riddell who's vice principal academic at the melbourne school of theology and uh, you can check out the melbourne school of theology website mst.edu.au uh, and uh, you'll find a link there in which you can communicate with peter too if you have a further question or a concern mst.edu.au Peter Riddell, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today on 2020. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au